Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. This is Eric Mann. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, the producer and co-host of the show, and Anna Kunkin, who's got a life of her own, but in this particular incarnation is here as the daughter of Art Kunkin, who was the founder and driving spirit of the Los Angeles Free Press. He died recently on April 30th. And there's going to be a memorial for him this Saturday, which we're going to talk about. So when he died, Anna called me up probably the same day, and we were on the phone, and we we had a really good connection. I wanted to make sure that she could be in uh, shortly before the memorial for him. So Anna, very nice to have you on Voices from the Frontlines. Thanks so much, Eric. It's great to be here. Well, one thing is, is uh, it's hard for our listeners to understand that there was a revolution. Though, If you haven't seen it, I keep saying I saw a revolution with my own eyes. I made a revolution with my bare hands. We were very lucky. We lived through, we being the people, actually in the 30s, and then in, even in the 50s in some way, and in the 60s, 70s, and then came Reagan and came Thatcher and came the, the long arm of the law to smash pretty much everything we built. So one thing I want to talk about with Anna and both, also by myself is that one of, there's so many lies, not misconceptions, but straight lies about the new left, the revolution, uh, slanders. So for instance, you know, one thing is, well, you guys were hippies and you didn't understand how to organize things, but you were just very spontaneous. No, actually, the Los Angeles Free Press was very well run. It was very well organized. At one point, it had $2 million in sales and assets. It had a printing press. It had different institutions, which you'll tell us about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to tell you later about my experience with the Boston Phoenix, the Boston After Dark, the Boston New Press. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But Anna, very nice to have her on you on the show. I'm going to just do one more uh, <laughs> introduction because it's just interesting. So it says, Art was born in the Bronx, in New York, where I lived. At the beginning of the Great Depression... He later said he was a radical. This is you wrote this, right? He actually said it. Right. That's a quote. But, but yes, I wrote. wrote I wrote this. Yes. Yeah, you wrote a terrific. Uh, I don't want to call it obituary, sort of a tribute, <laughs> yes. because of the hardship and equities he experienced. He had a talent for science and chemistry. 
He was accepted to the prestigious Bronx High School of Science, but he left before graduating to join the Trotskyite movement. No, it's called Trotskyist. The, the Trotskyites are what the communists call the Trotskyists. There he served for a short... I stand corrected. Well, so would your dad. <laughs> your dad would know that he didn't want to be a Trotskyite. He was a Trotskyist. Uh, there he served for a short time as business manager of the SWP papers, the Militant and News and Letters. I can go on, but no. The Johnson Forest tendency, which was a tendency inside of Trotskyism even, that was... Uh, uh, Grace Boggs eventually was, was actually part of. That's right, yeah. And uh, it was run by C.O.R. James. And then finally, he was a Los Angeles uh, editor of their magazine Correspondence while working as a master machinist and tool and die maker for Ford and General Motors, where I worked as an assemblyman, assembly line worker for Ford and General Motors. Wow. So the point was, in this just one introduction, it just shows the breadth of his life and the different things he tried uh, before we get into his achievements, what was he like being a dad? Well, <laughs> you know, it's something everybody wants to know. They, everybody imagines that, you know, uh, that I had some kind of, I guess I did have a special life growing up. And, you know, it was kind of divided because I was going to public schools and, you know, I was under the same pressure as everybody else just to be a normal kid and, you know, uh, Love the monkeys and you know right. <laughs> all that stuff, and then um, come home and it was a whole different story, you know. And I mean pre monkeys, way pre monkeys, but uh, um, because my parents just attracted the most amazing people, and so we had people from the civil rights movement coming through the door and coming to meetings and eating at our table, and we had people. Um, on, on buses on the way to the Deep South to register people to vote, sleeping on our floor, you know, we, um, I grew up on picket lines. And it's really interesting. I was listening to Dolores Huerta's daughter the other day on the radio, and her, her experience was real similar to mine. I think hers was probably a lot more intense, you know, because, but, but at the same time, you know, um, I spent Christmas Eve at the Socialist Workers' Party you know, everybody dancing the horror because they were all Jews from New York. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, it so- sounds like a great life. I mean, at least, you know, you, you had a life, a real life. Yeah, I was, ex- um, I was exposed to a lot. Uh, uh, the coffee house scene, I was a little kid. You know, all the grown-ups sitting around playing Go. You know, who knows what Go is, you know. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. So when we talk about the Los Angeles Free Press, so one of the things we're talking about is that Sometime, you know, when we grew up in the 60s, the first thing we knew was that the bourgeois press was the bourgeois press. It lied. I mean, it completely, it was shocking to be at Columbia in 68 and see the New York Times lie through its teeth, only to find out the New York Times was totally in bed with Columbia University. So the answer was, well, form your own newspaper. So they formed in 1963 the Los Angeles Free Press. Actually, four. Four, Okay. And then Anna here has, you're right, the the Ferry Free Press, which was uh, where the Free Press was sort of stuck inside of a very clever other thing, right? Oh my God, Pacifica Radio. What's Pacifica Radio doing here? <laughs> uh, well, actually, the Renaissance Pleasure Fair initially was a benefit for KPFK. Wow. So the first, the first 
Renaissance Fair was a benefit for KPFK. And you're showing that to I don't know who because to this is streaming radio. live on the web. <laughs> ah, we're no, live on. We're streaming. We're Yay! Streaming. Okay, nobody told me. That's um, my so so uh, Phyllis Patterson, who was the organizer of the event, it was the second year of the fair, and uh, my dad had had this idea to start a paper, and he was actually at KPFK going through the Rolodex. Thinking, trying to find volunteers and um, people donate to people to donate to the paper to get it going and whatnot, and somebody was running ran through the halls of this very building, wow. 1964, and said, "So and so didn't show up for their show. Who can cover?" And my dad said, "He said he, he actually I, I read in a in a." thing he wrote, I raised my hand and I said, I can talk about the new paper I want to start. <laughs> and, and he talked about it for an hour. And, and then he, he didn't actually have the guts previously. He had thought about going to the fair and promoting the paper at the fair, at the benefit, and hadn't really had the guts to call Phyllis. But after, after revving himself up for that hour on the radio, he got all excited, and he went, I'm going to do it. And he called Phyllis, and he said, Who's Phyllis? Phyllis Patterson, who was the woman who organized the Renaissance oh, Pleasure Fair, okay. the fair for KPFK radio. And, and he said, can I set up a card table and promote my paper? And she told him that she had been thinking about doing a period paper for the fair, and would he be interested in doing that? And he went, sure. So that was the idea. And he got all dressed up in a suit and tie and went and met with her. And uh, she actually later said she didn't think he would pull it off. <laughs> all, all great ideas, people think you won't pull it off. Otherwise, right. they're not great ideas. Absolutely. So everybody. Uh, so he pulled it off, and this is it. So we're looking at it, folks. Uh, so it says fairy free press. Fair free press. Fair, this I didn't this know is the, the fair. I get it. Yeah. I get. It. I thought it was fairy, but you know. But so uh, omens and news. So it looks like in the front, it's a front for the uh, fair, and then. In the inside, it says the text on Pacifica Radio. Then it says Los Angeles Free Press, May 25th, 1964. Sample copy of a new weekly to begin publication soon, which is a perfectly way of saying it. Puritanism scores victory. All women jury finds Ken Anger's anti-fascist film obscene. And then it's got, uh, in a short time, we plan to pr publish in Los Angeles a weekly newspaper catering to the community needs of the liberal intellectual population in the city. The content of the newspaper was similar to the noted Village Voice. Little or no international and national politics, but instead an emphasis on news and comment about our own city. Now, I bet it changed by the time, because the world was changing, moving it to the left of the Village Voice. Yeah, and the idea of the for the paper, you know... The, the, People had been sitting around the coffee houses talking about right. the idea of an, uh, Lionel Rolf, people who, you know, later became well-known journalists, um, sitting around talking about the need for a new paper. And the idea was something patterned after The Voice, but The Voice was was tied to the Democratic that, Party. Exactly right. It was a left liberal. It was tied to what's called the Village Independent Democrats at the time. Right. Who had won an insurgency. Against which were good, you know, they were they were like, hate to say it, kind of Bernie-like Democrats. Pardon me, 
but that's my opinion. But they were good people. They were more for civil rights, Julius uh, uh, Pfeiffer, people like that. Keep going. They were the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, Party at yeah, the time. I, and they but, got rid of Carmen DeSapio, who was a, a noted gang boss, and, and they defeated him, just like uh, Alexandria. So the idea would be that it would be patterned after it, but it would be something different. That's because right. Because L.A., has a whole other series of issues and problems. And and I remember, you know, I was nine. And I remember the discussion being, you know, L.A. is so scattered and there's people yeah. all over the place with all these different ideas reinventing the wheel for each other. And what is needed is a central hub, a place where, where all of the groups can meet. And, you know, so it'll be a political and cultural. And this was kind of pre-hippie, right? Right. So... And my dad said later, if the paper had come out six months earlier or six months later, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have taken off. It was that moment, that moment in time that made it work so well. So, Well, here's a great line. Is that right? Go ahead. Because it says here, this is a great title. So this is Friday, August 20th, 1965, after the Watts Rebellion. So the title is terrific. The Negroes have voted <laughs> by rising up. And it says, L.A. Times, Yorty and Parker, Yorty being the mayor, Parker being the police chief, do not understand events by Art Conkin. So you can read the first couple of paragraphs of this article. Okay. Um, in my dad's words. The demonstrations in the streets have completely ended the myth that the Negroes of Los Angeles are the happiest in the whole country. <laughs> so, because that was the myth, right? right? And, and you know, in L.A., everybody's got it great, and it's sunshine and lollipops for everyone. Everybody's happy. And this clearly wasn't the case. And, yeah, I, I read this whole article um, just last week, and I was kind of blown away. Um, my dad did a really in-depth analysis of how city government, how the police, how the mayor, how everybody got it wrong, what needed to be done, what wasn't being done, what had to be done. And actually, this issue in 1965, right after the riots in August, this analysis of what happened in the streets was what put the paper on the map. Because what was going on, the LA Times and the Herald Examiner, which was the other major paper at the time, were writing about how, oh, the Negroes have burnt down their own houses and their own communities and their own stores, and why would they do this? And this they is totally... <laughs> doesn't make any sense, and blah, 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 blah. And it was totally off the wall. And the there were journalists, LA Times journalists, who were writing, who had been there, saw what was happening, who wrote really good articles, and they were all edited and censored. And so the LA Times and their Herald Examiner both did this completely just what just flatten out the whole issue. And my dad and the, 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 the free press came out with, no, this isn't what's happening. This is what's happened. There are real issues that are going on here. There are real problems with the police. There are real problems with the way people are treated. And the LA Times staff threatened to go out on strike if the Times didn't change their position. So they were forced to change their position. And Lionel Rolf wrote afterwards that from that day on, 
the LA Times and the Herald Examiner lived in fear of what the free press would say. Yeah, and, let me read some of the stuff again. It's been an election without ballot box. The Negroes have cast their vote. Whether or not the white majority likes this vote, it is time for the analysis which follows every election. It's time to listen to the Negro. Now, this seems obvious, but he's a white guy. He's a Jew, I'm assuming. And the question of writing to white people about the Negro has been what James Baldwin has had to do, what W.B. Du Bois has had to do, and they've always asked, could some white people please write to white people to explain to them about the Negro, which, you know, so it says here, attempts to simply establish law and order, to simply establish the pre-demonstration status quo are doomed to failure. Anyone thinks in these terms is fundamentally anti-Negro and will be understood as such by the vast majority of Negroes. Law and order, which is Nixon's cry, you know, uh, much very soon. The great tragedy is that the government officials and the major news media have not understood what's happened. They've simply seen the breakdown of law and order and have been showing by their statements and actions during and after the events that they did not hear the message that the Negroes were broadcasting for all with ears to hear. Indeed, the stage is now being set by the so-called responsible leaders of our community for reprisals against the Negro community, not for any positive confrontation of the problems which led thousands in Los Angeles, the safe city, to face death at the hands of police and soldiers because they had given up hope that ordinary democratic methods would really do anything for them and their children. The climate is locally as such that anyone who criticizes Chief Parker, and this is Eric Mann reading the voice of Art Kunkin in the newspaper, the Los Angeles Free Press, although it does sound like something I and we would have written in 19... So it's so far good politically. Very good, yeah. uh, uh, the climate locally is such that anyone who criticizes Chief Park or the city administration for their role in the disturbances, and there was tremendous police brutality against people, parenthesis, for their role in the disturbances is called a communist or a supporter of criminal elements. It's actually very dangerous in Los Angeles today to enter reasonable objections to sensationalistic reporting and ridiculous charges of conspiracy. Yeah, I just want to keep going because we do a lot of work in the black community. It's right. okay, and this is really good. To 65, we're now 44 years later, and it's, things it, are worse. <laughs> I mean, yeah. really, at the voice of reason, of compassion, of immediate positive action must be heard, and it must be heard from the white community, or else the ne next Negro protest will be even more severe, which is he called the fire next time, James Baldwin. Not only in the Negro ghetto, but every neighbor in the city will come in armed camp. Not only white businesses in the city will go up in flames, but the very mountains and oil fields ringing Los Angeles. Whoa, <laughs> there's a threat here. <laughs> and, and, and who will really be to blame then? The Negroes who act and explode out of sheer frustration of the, or the white community, which is the power to act decisively, but which did not listen before the explosion is not listening now. So this is great because today, if I can just talk to my friend Art Conkin for a minute, we've made no progress with the whites in L.A. Very little. We haven't. I mean, Channing and I work in the black and Latino community in South Central, in East L.A., in uh, South L.A. is now a black and Latino community. Uh, 
There's no white support for our campaign for no police in the schools. There's no white support for our campaign for no police on the trains. None at all. There's no white support for the black kids who are getting arrested for being truant. By the way, terrible, terrible story about uh, Kamala Harris and her prosecution of parents. Jenny? Oh, God, yeah, I heard about that. Oh, yeah, that article I sent. Yeah, that you sent me. I couldn't, it's almost as if that article woke me up in the middle of the night to read it, and it was really scary. But, you know, the other thing I was going to say is that we just, you know, spent eight hours this weekend at Ciclavia. Oh, yeah, it's a positive, positive, go ahead. Well, it confirms everything that you're saying, though. Climate, 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 yes, a lot of white people are very in support, but, you know, just to give you an example, okay, you know, some a white person was in support of environment and then he came up and read our entire program. And, and you know. And say what the program is, some of the things. Ooh, well, say it. Otherwise, uh, we, we no people cars don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's right. No cars in the way, free public transportation, uh, free the U.S. 2.5 million. Uh, stop prisoners. Prisoners, right. Uh, stop uh, violence against women in the home, in the streets. Uh, by the army, for the army, by the government. I can't remember the exact words. Um, uh, we just added one about Palestine, um, about... Uh, um, and the blockade of and Gaza. And the blockade of Gaza, right? We just added one about South Africa, about the land appropriation movement, um, moving land from white South Africans back to black farmers. Uh, we have one around Venezuela, we have one about the right to protest and um, the right to actually rebel. Um, so, so many more. Uh, How, what were people's response? Well, so one guy, I remember one response, which was a very terrible response. I told him conversation over right away, actually. Um, and he responded well to, to free public transportation and environment. And then he saw the Palestine demand and said, and I quote, that there is no genocide against Palestinians. That's BS, uh, and you're just anti-Israel. So I told him, of course, conversation over. But the point is that you know that's the that was the most overt um, you know dislike of our demands. But there were many of white people that liked the environment. But the moment you mentioned police, the conversation changed because they like the police. Well, that's the the thing that. To, to go full circle and back to you, Anne, okay, that the, the question is that the, the importance of the free press was that it had one foot in the black community, one foot in the white, which is very unusual because, like the headline there, core leader observes ghetto fighting. So the head of core, Bob Freeman, see, I was in the Congress of Racial Equality at the time in, in uh, Harlem, so the fact is I'm getting to, the headline says the Negroes have voted. Terrific article by your dad. Then core leader gets to speak on the front page of the, of the paper. A terrific contribution. And also to say that we picked up a lot of members and a lot of cards, including from at least some white bike, bicycles. Oh, yes, a lot of. Who, yes. who are, in other words, who are being exposed to it. So at least we found some subset of white people who, might want to know who Art Kunkin is and might want to know who <laughs> black people are. Might want to know. And it wasn't just the 
one one foot in the white and one foot in the black. It was everybody. You know, I think the free press was the first place, well, other than Pacifica, but maybe the first print place where every community, the but, gays you know. had a voice. Um, the hippies, as they you know exploded, had a voice. The youth had a voice. The old people had a voice. The Chicanos had a voice. Everybody's voice was heard there. And what was really, really interesting, um, I was talking to Chris from Indie Media the other day, and we founded, we were two of the people in the core initial group of Indie Media. The things that we said in 99 when we were organizing Indie Media for the uh, Democratic Convention right. was... Every reporter, every reader is a reporter. My dad was saying that in 1964. That's a good one. Every reader every is a reader reporter. Is. And, you know, he was, he was encouraging people. They saw something, write the story, turn the story in. This wasn't set up to be this sort of, you know, staff-only reporter situation where only the people who were sent out into the street to cover the story would do it. The people were, in, were encouraged to write their own stories, so you got voices that you never had heard before. And um, I think it just opened up a whole other, you know, a whole new, a whole new situation, which lasted for 10 years. Well, let me ask you this, that um, you have three, in some way the three you gave us are an interesting uh, whatever it's called, the trilogy, because the first is the opener. Right. The second is the Watts Rebellion, but here is something we have to talk about. It's, this is now 1969, August 14th. It says, narcotic agents listed. There should be no secret police. Uh, recently, there have been published stories of abuses of power involving narcotics officers. Several officers of many years standing have even been discharged for faking evidence. So tell us about this story, and then tell us about the impact it had on your dad and the impact it had on the free press. Well, a lot of people don't understand, and I, you know, honestly, it's really hard to understand. Why did he publish this? Um, tell him what he did first. Well, okay, so what happened was um, somebody, I don't know the exact story, who worked in some government, high government office, um, came across a list. Actually, the list was being passed around as a Christmas list oh, of, of uh, narcotics agents, right. addresses, phone numbers, and, um, and names. And they brought the list to my dad, and uh, he published the list. And he had, you know... He had checked with his lawyers, and there was no law that there was actually a law written afterwards because of this about publishing things like, like this and uh, um, outing people. Um, he, and, you know, it, 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 it was a serious tactical error on his part because it started a spiral, as I wrote in the memorial of that I wrote, it started to spiral, a downward spiral, because he was now caught up in lawsuits by the federal government, the state government, the city government, the narcotics agents. Um, he couldn't get published. He couldn't get printed. So he had to buy a printing press, which never worked correctly. And that also tore down and, and, and pulled down on the empire. So he lost everything because of having published this list. And But uh, you have to think about the times. 
um, the it was a war. The narcotics right. agents were right. seriously impinging on people's freedoms. Um, they were falsifying evidence. They were breaking into people's homes without warrants. Um, they were arresting people off the street. It was mm -hmm. seriously a war, and these people were undercover. That's a great line. I'll hold it there. The voice you're hearing there is Anna Konkin, who just said, you have to remember there was a war. The station you're listening to is uh, KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at KPFK. And, and tell Channing, I, I should know by now, tell him what that thing is I'm looking into. And you can actually go onto Facebook right now and look us up at Eric Mann Speaks, and we are streaming live. You'll be seeing our faces, but then you'll also be seeing some great clippings from the articles of free press um, that I've downloaded. We actually also have some here in the studio that we're showing onto camera. And please feel free to tweet us right now during the show um, on Twitter at Eric Man Speaks, and we would love to read your comment on the air. Yeah, please do. Uh, we're going to talk about greater participation in a minute, but that would mean a lot to us. Twit tweet us at Eric Man Speaks. Um, and uh, I mean, it's so that I didn't want to interrupt, but I, yeah. I, there's one thing I just wanted to say and write back to you, and then I think you could read this. Uh, we're going to get to the transition in the middle. I want you to read some stuff. But think about Daniel Ellsberg, who did this. Think about, uh, you know, Assange, who did this. I mean, at the time, I think your dad figured, it's a war and i got to do something. Right. And people did things and there were consequences. That's partly what we're trying to say about the counter-revolution, is the system makes you pay. It's not like you just can do whatever you want. So keep going on that story, though, because there were lawsuits. And then I want to segue a little bit into uh, his search for personal answers, which you could even read a little bit off your own terrific text. Got my, got right. my uh, reading But tell us a little bit about the law. How old were you? Now 69. Um, I'm not trying to get into know. it. doesn't matter. How old was I? 16, 17. All right, right. So w your dad, w through all the lawsuits, he lost, he had eventually had to file for bankruptcy, right? Right, lost the house, um, really? lost everything, wow. yeah. Well, that's what happened. You know, that's why a lot of people don't want to do it today, by the way. Yeah. You know, I mean, oh, you lost your house? Oh. Wait, you went to prison? Oh, <laughs> yes. You got beat up? Oh. Well, m maybe I'll just tweet. You know, so uh, we don't have to think about this we don't anymore. Have to think yeah. about this anymore. <laughs> so was, go ahead. Well, he was exonerated finally. Were, uh, in like 1973. Did they give him a, him a new house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that didn't happen. Right. So, well, so tell about the segue into the other parts of his life, and we'll come back and forth. Well, you read some, it's very nice text, and then you could still oh, extemporize. You. Is that right? Okay. Well, um, anyway, he, you know, throughout all this, he was under a lot of pressure, as people can imagine. And um, he, at the time, L.A., well, it always is, but at that time in particular, there were a million spiritual groups and workshops, and there was Est and Scientology right. and the Sufis and the Sikhs and the everybody everywhere. And uh, Nishan Shoshu walking down the street with tambourines, and you know it was it was kind of people were looking for something right. more tangible than LSD at that point. You know they they wanted something more and more spiritual. So they were there was a lot available, and he 
also was um, affected by that and and did a lot of searching and went through Sufism. I remember, you know, he would like to show up with books and 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 Gurdjieff and this and that and. Um, he met Andrew de Passano, who had studied, he was Italian, and he had studied in Italy with um, accolades of the Dalai Lama, who had been sent to Italy. And this was a new type of meditation, or a type of meditation, actually ancient type of meditation, which promised a certain type of spiritual immortality. And so my dad went for it got really involved, studied with Andrew, opened a school for him where he wound up teaching in the end um, on Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, yeah, so, so, you know, three, four nights a week, people would come and take these classes. And so at some point, a student of his came to him and said, you know, this is alchemy. And my dad went, what? Who? Mm. <laughs> you mean transform gold, what? And, uh, and, and the guy said, no, um, there is a school in Salt Lake City run by Frater Albertus called, um, and it's the teachings of Paracelsus, who was a great alchemist. Uh, I don't even know in which century, 12th century, a long time ago, and 13th, I don't know when. But anyway, uh, and you need to go check this out. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Because the actual, the definition I learned was turning base metals into gold was the the formal definition. So obviously, if that wasn't the right definition or another one, what was the theory of alchemy? Okay, now I'm not a. I was only sort of on the peripheral, so you know my knowledge. That's is okay. Be, Just by, a lot of people listening are going to know a lot more than I do. But essentially, the alchemists. Well, it was the first chemistry in in the West, right? So we hear about mm -hmm. the Eastern chemistries, right? And we hear about Ayurvedic, and we hear about, you know, homeopathy, and we hear about all of these things. Alchemy was the Western version of that. And so people were searching for medicines and things to heal. And, um, and at the base of that, it was looking for the, the philosopher's stone in an eternal life. Hmm. And, you know, that was always that, I mean, as humans, I guess, you know, that's always sort of the dream, right? And um, so these were the scientists and the people who went for that. And my dad had, his, had this history in chemistry, right? He had been, you that's know. That's right, Bronx Science Society. Yeah, high school science. he was always super interested in chemistry. So this attracted him on a lot of different levels. And so he went to Salt Lake City and he finished the seven-year course in four years because my dad, <laughs> wish I had his brain, and um, you have a pretty good brain. <laughs> Keep going. Thank you. And uh, came back and uh, taught it because his the way he always worked was you learn something you teach it, and that's how you that's how you own it, right? And so he started. He had chemistry labs. My dad was like the the ultimate hoarder and collector, and you know like. He had this basement in this apartment building in the middle of Hollywood, in old Hollywood, and the basement was full of like chemistry stuff, you know. And the the, the fire department discovered it, and it was like, oh my god, we got to get Wait, this stuff like, out of here. He wasn't like Breaking Bad, was he? Well, yeah, except he was looking for the philosopher's stone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, there was stuff in there that was seriously dangerous, you know? 
<laughs> I mean, he's lucky, lucky, <laughs> lucky that there wasn't an actual explosion. <laughs> and then he knew Aleister Crowley's secretary. See, my dad had all these crazy friends, right? He hung out with Tim Leary, and he hung out with Aleister Crowley, and he hung out with all these crazy people. And so he wound up inheriting Al- Aleister Crowley's laboratory and mm. all of his papers and all of his studies and, like, all this stuff. So anyway, uh, in the end, he, he, I mean, he went through several incarnations throughout which he tried to start another paper, and during the whole time he was also doing, you know, uh, directing the school at, at uh, Philosophical Research Society and doing... So he had, like, two lives going on parallel. And uh, he got invited to go out to Joshua Tree, and he went out there and set up his lab and uh, books. And, oh, my God, you know, when he passed, 40,000 books in a barn, a lab, a wow. shed, mixed up with free press stuff, archives, papers, um, stuff on alchemy, stuff on the esoteric sciences, the way of the magus. I mean, everything. The man was interested in everything. <laughs> And he had books and papers and files, and he never threw any of it away. So we're in the process actually now of sort of digging through all of that, separating it, getting it organized, and trying to find somebody to help archive it because the free press stuff needs to be saved and archived. Take a minute there. The voice you're hearing, the terrific voice you're hearing, is that of Anna Konkin, who talks a lot about her father, but if you listen to her voice, it's a terrific reflection of yourself. Thank you. And really, and to the degree you're channeling some of the best parts of your dad, that's cool too, you know, <laughs> but you're yourself. And, uh, Thank you. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM. I which am. Your dad uh, helped, in fact, KPFK contributed directly to the formation of the FREEP, the Los Angeles Free Press. I'm going to do a little riff in a couple minutes. And I, I want to go to the phones in a... In a maybe five or six minutes for people that knew art or knew the free press. So, you know, listeners, remember, stay on message. That's all (laughs) we got to do. You got two minutes and relate to what you just heard. Any comments about other subjects, it's not that free speech radio, okay? You have to be relevant. So we're going to go to the phones in maybe six or seven minutes. You can start lining up at 818-985-5735 now. Let's make the announcement right now Yeah, of the memorial for your dad this Saturday. Yes. Can you give us the information? Okay. The voice you're hearing is Anna Kunkin. Everybody get out your pens. Please write this down. Um, and I have to say, please bring food. I'm afraid thousands of people are going to show up and there needs to be enough food. Um, right. Bring anyway. your own food. Or bring, bring, to, bring to share. Right. Um, the Art Kunkin Memorial Celebration and Potluck. On July 6th, which will be the Saturday after 4th of July at 2 p.m. at the Echo Park United Methodist Church. And the address is 1226 North Alvarado. Um, For those of you who don't have a pen but who know Echo Park or know L.A., it's just north, two blocks north of Sunset. And there is parking. Uh, street parking is difficult, but, you know, find it if you can. Otherwise, um, the parkers at Tex Restaurant around the corner on Sunset have generously for $7 offered to uh, park people's cars for them. That's great. 
And um, this is going to be a really interesting event. I'm looking forward to seeing people who are part of the paper and who can fill in the blanks for me and help me write the book, maybe. And um, also people from the spiritual part of his life who were around when I wasn't. And, um, you know, we can all get to know the man in, you know, a three-, four-dimensional way. That's very nice, Adam. We always, and I, I want to say a couple of words to our listeners on, on a couple of related things about what Anna said. We'll make the announcement at least one more time. If you knew Art Konkin, if you were influenced by the L.A. Free Press, that's what we want the calls to be about, okay? If not, just let we'll keep talking. But if you knew Art Konkin, if you have things to say about the Los Angeles Free Press, that's the subject of our conversation. So a couple of thoughts I wanted to share with our listeners. Um we're trying to build voices from the front lines. We call it your national movement building show, but we're also calling it your social justice community because there's a model, and it's interesting how you had the relationship of the LA Free Press and KPFK, mm-hmm. is during the 60s when I worked, uh, actually the 70s, I got out of prison. I was in prison for a year and a half. I got out in very late July 1971. Fortunately, through a longer story, I re- sort of became a journalist indirectly because I went out to the Bay Area to visit my daughter. When I got there, George Jackson, the prisoner, was killed in San Quentin. And I had been very active in the prisoner's movement since I was a prisoner and a political prisoner. <clears throat> and somehow, not being a professional writer at all, I started saying, I want to write an article about George Jackson. And I went on a journey where I um, I started writing. I found an old friend named Karen Wald, who's still, a, I hope she's still alive, in Cuba, who she became a very close, we went to Cornell together. She became a very close uh, figure in the Cuban Revolutionary, in Cuba. She became like their press secretary. Wow. Yeah. She helped me with the writing. I've always had wonderful editors, and she said, basically, you can't write. (laughs) (laughs) Let me break it to you. You're a good speaker. This is a different form. And then I worked on it. I learned, and I went to to L.A., and Tom Hayden, my old friend and at times, you know, competitor, but he was very nice, and he was in Venice, and he helped me with the article. And I actually got it together, and I wrote this article, a lengthy article, and I sent it to my editors at the Boston uh, Free Press. The, I keep calling it the Boston Phoenix. Harper Barnes, who's still alive, who wrote a great book in St. Louis about race riots, and the late Stu Urban, who w- ended up working for Rolling Stone. So one thing I'm trying to say is those papers were real, and they had money. They had money. They were like in, in uh, L.A., they were making money off the record companies. So they had big, big, big ads for all the new, you know, albums and concerts and everything. And I know that Art had more sex ads and other things like that that were helping to... Uh, support the paper. Support the paper, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. So anyway, here's my point. That at the time, we had WBCN, which was the first FM kind of rock station, and all these papers. And WBCN, Charles Lacodera and Danny Schechter the late Danny Schechter, if something was happening in the community, you'd go on WBCN. they say, hey, they're attacking the Black Panthers right now. We need everybody to go. That's what the Voices from the Front Lines is trying to be. 
It's trying to be a place where things are happening in the community, in the world. We did a really great job when we were with um, uh, Candy Mossett from uh, the Standing Rock Indigenous Environmental Network. Oh, yeah. Here's some of that. On the time. She was right there. She's calling in and saying, hey, everybody, we're surrounded by troops right now. So that's the kind of radio show that we want to develop, right? And uh, so here's my point. Go on the website and register. You go on Voices from the Front Lines, and you click on there, and it'll say register. We Last week, we got about 10 new emails. We need you every week if you're not on there. We put out a beautiful story about Art Kunkin this week. It was done by me and Channing, and then it went out last night, which is better than usual, and this morning, right? Yeah. So we want you to come to the Art Kunkin Memorial. How would you know about it? You listen to Voices from the Front Lines. So we want you to do things. That's the point, not just think things. So please join. Send me a tweet at Eric Mann Speaks. Send me an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And we're going to go to Lita in Sherman Oaks. Hi. Um, am I on? You are very much on, yes. You're with um, Anna Kunk and Eric Mann. Hi. Anna. Hi. Um, hi. I, I wrote for the Free Press in the early 70s. And um, truly, Art gave me a really incredible... The first time I wrote, he published two of my poems and gave me a two-full-page spread. Wow. With, I mean, it was really... It made me feel like I could do something. It had like a, a kind of shadow profile of my face, and um, my name was different at the time. But um, That's okay. But it, it was really fabulous. And then um, Chris Van Ness gave me an opportunity to start doing some writing. And so I wrote theater reviews. I wrote interviews. Um, and then when art... When the free press closed and he opened up the other paper, the Hollywood... The staff. Company, yeah. Um, I did a long article on Scientology. And the whole thing was just wonderful for me. It was a real... Um, in terms of my own writing and that I could do something, I got paid like nothing. But um, but it was a really wonderful thing. And the whole... The paper and the both politically and creatively and artistically. It was a really special thing. And I'll, I mean, I'll just remember it forever. Well, thanks a lot. That means a lot. Obviously, that's part of the legacy. Absolutely. You know, if I can just say, Lita, you know, similar, I was almost on the other story, is that I finally sent my story back to Harper Barnes and to Stu Werbin. And they called me up and says, all right, you're getting off the plane. Would you meet us? at this restaurant in, in uh, Little Italy in Boston. And I was very nervous, and I thought they were about to tell me that they were rejecting the article, but I had been in prison for some pretty militant actions, so I think they were a little afraid of me. <laughs> and uh, I went to meet with them, and they were going, well, well, and I'm waiting and waiting, and they said, it's really good, but how would you feel if we ran it as a three-part series and ran it off the cover every week? I went, what? That's what you're afraid of? That's the greatest news I've ever heard. And I realized, oh my God, I must have some power in this situation that they're actually treating me like I'm somebody. Whereas I was just desperate to get published. So the point is, for those of us who wanted to be published, who had something to say, 
the alternative press was wonderful. Out of my articles came a book called Comrade George, an investigation into the life, political thought, and assassination of George Jackson, which was published by Harper and Rowe. It sold 15,000 copies. It's the first book I ever published. So that's some, I'm trying to talk about the relationship of radio and print and movement building. Call us up at 818-985-5735 if you'd like to talk, as Lita did, about the uh, Los Angeles Free Press and the role of Art Konkin. Um, let's talk one more time about the event because I think it is important for people to come on Saturday and to uh, honor art and to honor uh, the, the Free Press and to honor uh, Anna, who's doing all this great work. Go ahead. Okay. Um, July 6th, 2 p.m., Echo Park United Methodist Church near the corner of Alvarado and Sunset. The address is 1226 North Alvarado. Um, and there's street parking, some, and valet parking at Tex Restaurant. Also, um, there's a GoFundMe. Um, we're trying to organize and uh, save his archives. Uh, which are basically in a barn and right. need to be gone through, cataloged. Um, and so the GoFundMe is... Um, no, that's, no, no, not yet. Not, no, not on the show. Okay. So okay. here's the thing. Um, what's important about what she's saying is that the role of archiving is so important. I mean, right now there's a, a young uh, Chicano... Uh, scholar named Eddie Bonilla who's working with the Strategy Center to help our archives. He found about myself, he was doing an article about the August 29th movement, which is a communist group that my wife Leanne Hurst and I were in and from about 74 to 84. He found it by Googling, I guess, August 29th movement. He found that the archives were at the University of Massachusetts at um, uh, Northampton, and he went out there and found the boxes that my wife Leanne and other people had actually compiled for a year. So this stuff is so, oh, and he's now working with us to help us continue the archiving process of 30 years of the Strategy Center's leaflets and flyers and stuff like that. So besides a GoFundMe page, which we can't talk about, except to say exists, um, there's also people that could volunteer for this because we need, I mean, the point is I'm looking at three amazing papers right here and you have a whole folder. And uh, if I can make a, a relevant joke, you know, there's a, oh, uh, you know, they said to this you know, woman goes to the psychiatrist and says, uh, the psychiatrist says, what's your problem? She said, I don't have any problem. She says, well, why are you going there? She says, my kids think I should go to a psychiatrist because I like potato latkes. <laughs> and, and he says, well, your kids are crazy. They're the ones who should see a psychiatrist. I love potato latkes. She says, you do? Come to my house. I, ho I have a whole attic full. <laughs> well, that's sort of like the Art Conkin archives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. You, if, you like the, if you like the free press, I got a whole barn full, a whole, right, a whole house full. A shed full. A shed full of uh, 50,000 books. But let's try to get Anna, the point I'm saying seriously, is let's get Anna the help that she needs because this was one of the most important papers. And I'm trying to say 
one more thing, uh, I hope it's relevant, is that there was a guy named R, uh, Ray Mungo, and he should be checked out. He's very important, and he built the Liberation News Service. Oh, yeah. And yeah. were you part of that, right? I don't know. Yes, you were. Because the Liberation News Service, again, people don't realize the level of organization we had. Um, there were 600 underground papers. Okay, yeah. Now, that I don't know if that's what it was called, though. It was just sort of Liberation a... Liberation News Service, it was. Oh, okay, see, you dumb. Didn't no, know. No, okay, saying. or I didn't know and I forgot. Um, so many things. Um, yeah, so essentially my dad organized and helped people all over the country create their own papers. He showed them the template. He showed them how to print cheaply. Right. Um, he explained to them how to make it work, and they did. And uh, before you knew it, the people in the military were creating their own papers. That's right. That's and right. so the network... it was a loosely organized network of papers of which my father my father created it. I don't think he completely created it. I think he contributed to contributed. it. Contributed, okay. But, Wrong sorry. word. Wrong no, word. No, no, it's, it's important because other people were doing I'm saying the Liberation News Service was an actual organized. But what you're saying is that people in that period in history were out to help other people. I'm going to take two calls, uh, Roger in Culver City and then Nancy in Brentwood. Roger? Uh, Nancy, how you doing, Nancy? Well, I hope I, I'm trying not to move these wires because my phone's making trouble. I've known Art Conkin for many years, not real well, but he was everywhere at all the anti-war demonstrations. I mean, he, he was the face that everybody knew who lived in Los Angeles. And I remember when he started the Free Press again, uh, there's a lot of stuff. He was very modest, so he really didn't talk about himself. Uh, you know, you know, I didn't know he did all this stuff. So it's amazing. Um so, you know, he was one, in some ways, he was like a mentor to me and, and you know, many of the, our elders in the movement. So um, I will try to get to this, this thing at, uh, um, at the church, but it's so, what is it? Um, um, Saturday at 2. Saturday, Saturday at 2 o'clock? Yes. Okay. Well, anyhow, I, 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 I do miss seeing him around because that's one of those faces, you know, he was like everybody's re- revolutionary. Boy, you put that on his nice name of it. That you know, he was sort of like uh, the Nancy Lawrence of his time. <laughs> you know, and he was the Maria Gordado of his time. The two of you are yes. everywhere. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> good comparison. Very good. All right. I, I hope you accept the compliment. So uh Thanks, that, Nancy. All right. Uh Roger in Culver City. We're getting close. Are you still on? Yes, I'm talking. <laughs> I guess you are. Go ahead. Um, hello to Anna. Thank you. And I can Hi. remember Anna appearing at KPFK events. Yes. And also at, at a uh, local station board meeting. Several of them, yes. Uh, yep. And uh, thank you for thank that. Thank you. And, and uh, I also knew Art, and I called on him when KPFK was in the middle of its uh, trying to take the station back from people who wanted to disappear it. And I, I called him up and went to um, the, then um, an, an old, older um, station manager, general manager, and uh, I'd forgotten his name, but he connected me with Art, and Art uh, worked uh, to get some publicity out about 
what was going on at KPFK. So in essence, he helped save KPFK from being turned into a Democratic uh, Party spokes uh, function. Okay, so well, thank you very much, and thank you for calling. How many minutes do we have left? Two. So let's make sure, so everybody, a couple of things to summarize. This is Eric Mann. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM. When we do the fund drive, remember that. This is the fund. This is the organization that gives you the news you need. The voice you're hearing is on a Konkin. Please go on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. You'll be able to hear of a download of the show in a couple of days. It'll already be up on the KPFK archives. You'll have news of the event. We'll put that up on the, on the website. And please uh, become a regular listener of and supporter of uh, Voices. Uh, send me a tweet at Eric Mann Speaks. Send me an email at eric at Voices from the Frontlines. And Anna Conkin, thank you so much for being on the show. You get the last word. Okay. Um, I just want to call out about the Art Conkin Tributes Facebook page. So um, people are gathering there and talking to each other about art and sharing stories. That's a really good place. Um, so it's Art Conkin Tributes Facebook page. Um, also, any comments, um, interest, artconkintributes at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I hope to see you all Saturday at 2 o'clock and bring food. <laughs> Definitely bring food. I mean, she's a very wonderful person, but she's not trying to feed everybody Saturday at 2. Okay, so thanks for being on Voices from the Front Lines. We're going to go out with Nina Simone. Uh, stay tuned for Rising Up with Sonali. Kohat card, who's going to be on in about two or three minutes. We had a great experience Saturday. We want to thank our friends at Ciclavia, who did a great job. Thousands of people with bicycles, and some of them starting to pay attention to no police on the trains and buses, free public transportation, and no cars in the way. And if you're interested, go to info at thestrategycenter.org. Thank Channing Martinez for all the work he does to live stream the show. And Nina Simone's going to take us out. Thanks for everything. And the brother on this, uh, Gary Baca, I should know. Gary Baca on controls. And I thank you very much, Gary. And Anna, it's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Your dad will be very proud. Thank you. I mean it. Bye, everybody. And more, much more than this.